How did you make out with that exam? Good. 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 Any others coming up? I know. This was next. This was next? So we, um, we need to finish up that slide set we were working on Monday. Uh, there's just a few things left there. This, um, this slide here, it's not exactly positioned right before this, but I just want to summarize the last few things we were talking about. What um, all three of these drugs have in common was all frequently used for urinary tract infections. Some used more often than others. Probably top of the list would be what? In terms of frequency of use for urinary tract infection. <coughs> yeah, it would be the sulfonamide based drugs. And it's usually this combination specifically. A sulfonamide with another drug that complements the mechanism of action of the sulfonamide. And someone had asked me after class, all these different names, they're all one and the same. So there's two different trade names for Bactrim. One is Bactrim, one is Septrim. Two different companies made the same drug. Oftentimes it's referred to as cotrimoxazole, just to make it easier, or the abbreviations SMX, TMT. So I will use for exams the entire name in Bactrim. You'll see both. If you're not sure, you can come up and ask me. I don't think I'll be here the day of that exam, though. I'm not sure. When did we schedule that for? Two weeks from today? Oh, I'll be here for that. Yeah. Okay. So, um, mechanistically, what pathway are these guys interfering with? These guys being sulfamethoxazole intramethoprim. <coughs> this this last category here, what are they doing? Inhibiting inhibiting folic acid synthesis. The ability of bacteria to create their own folic acid, which can then be used as fuel to produce new protein, is interfered with. And the reason why that tends to be selectively toxic for or more toxic for bacteria than for human cells is because Human cells can use dietary folic acid to continue on these processes, whereas bacterial cells, at least initially, aren't able to do that. With repeated exposure of these kinds of drugs, they may evolve through a mechanism of resistance to figure out how to use folate from other sources, but it's not an inherent property that they, they are born to deal with. The other two drugs, I don't care so much if you know their mechanisms. Um, but I do want you to appreciate what they're used for. The only thing either one of those drugs is useful for is treating certain types of urinary tract infections. And most commonly when those urinary tract infections are due to E. coli bacteria and they're not considered to be complicated infections. So here is the antibiogram for our hospital here uh, up through 2016. This doesn't get updated all that often and they're actually working on something that's a little bit different this year, so that's why we don't have the most current numbers. But we have, again, Bactrim, Cipro, in this case, Cefazolin, Nitrate, Brantoin, and the number of isolates that were tested against those organ against these antibiotics that were E. coli isolates, either originating in the emergency department or originating in any one of the ambulatory clinics. And what you see here is what? Like, what would be your 
synopsis of the data. Nitro for Antoine seems to be the most effective agent of the group. Why would that be? Not, not used as often. That's the primary reason. So Nitro for Antoine, at least up through 2016, is a drug that probably isn't used as much as it could be. And as a consequence, there's not a whole lot of resistance. What drives resistance to Bactrim? It's used very frequently. What drives resistance to Cipro? It's used very frequently. Cefazolam, what is that? It's a cephalosporin. What family does it belong to? It's not one that I asked you to remember. Second generation. I didn't ask you to remember any of the second generation, so that's a good that's a good place to guess. But it's first, yeah. It's essentially it's essentially the intravenous equivalent to what drug? Keflex or cephalexin. So we're reporting here on cefazolin, and you can see that's not all that useful. The other thing that drives the susceptibility patterns, really for all three of these drugs, is what? That they can also be used for multiple other things. The only indication for nitroprantolin is urinary tract infection. Bactrim, Cipro, cefazolin can be used for a number of other things. And in the case of cefazolin, the most common use is not urinary tract infection. It's a whole bunch of other things that are usually related to skin. All right, now let's apply this. We have a 71-year-old <coughs> woman with a urinary tract infection. She has a somewhat complicated history in that she's got multiple other illnesses. Type 2 diabetes. What's the second one? Atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. The new way of saying... Heart, heart disease, yeah. She has atrial fibrillation, high blood pressure, and in this case, well, there's a typo here. What is this? And I suppose in this day and age, that might be possible. Um, but that, that's so there is no enlarged prostate in this case. So there's, there's no known allergies, and what do you think about the, this number here? Serum creatinine of 3.02. That's, that's a pretty high number, right? That's someone who has pretty significant renal disease. What else do we know about them? The GFR, the estimated GFR using that number to calculate the GFR is 26 mLs per minute. What else do we know about them? No, no, no allergies, but sticking that to this last row. <laughs> Uh, we would probably want to dose adjust any drugs that are cleared to the kidney based on the imperative of function. What else? What's this AA? Yeah, this, per this person's African American. Now, when the lab reports an EGFR, they'll report it in two rows. You'll have an EGFR for AA and an EGFR for NAA. What's NAA? Not. Right, not, not African American. And the lab doesn't know which is which, so they give you both numbers and then they assume that you'll be able to pick the right one for your patient. And the reason for that is because the formulas are a little bit different based on those ethnicities. There's a correction factor that goes into this population, African American, that doesn't exist for the rest of the world. 
Alright, so these are her medications. Lisinopril, what's that? ACE inhibitor. Probably the most commonly used ACE inhibitor in this country. Would it make sense that she would be prescribed an ACE inhibitor? Yes. For what reasons? She has hypertension. She has heart disease. And she has diabetes with kidney disease, right? Three good reasons to be on an ACE inhibitor. All right, insulin in two different forms. We will talk more about diabetes and how it's treated after exam one. But one of these insulins is to address mealtime carbohydrate intake, insulinless problem. And the other is to address basal glucose production from the liver, and that's insulin glargine. Does anyone know the other name for insulin glargine? Probably the most common of the long-acting insulins today. Well, metformin is an oral medication. We have a long way to go there. <laughs> that's what we're thinking about right now. So it's, the brand name for that is Lantus. Some of you might be familiar with that. That's what insulin glargine is. Metformin is an oral pill that patients take. It is the most commonly used drug for diabetes in the world, but it's not insulin. Omeprazole, what is that? Yeah. Proton pump inhibitor, and what do those drugs do? They, they suppress. <laughs> they, su they suppress acid production. And is there an indication for use here? These would be used to treat dyspepsia, relieve symptoms of reflux promote or prevent, promote healing of an ulcer or prevent an ulcer from forming in the first place? Nothing obvious, right? So why is she on it? She may have been in the hospital, and what happens when you get admitted to the hospital? You get started on medications like this, just because it's part of the culture, not because you need to have an indication. And then you go home and then you stay on it. So it doesn't appear, based on what's written, that there's a clear indication, but that's oftentimes the, the scenario. And sometimes patients have obtained their omeprazole where? Not by prescription, but over the counter, just over the counter, because it doesn't require a prescription anymore. Is there any infectious risk with using a proton pump inhibitor? It's part of the treatment regimen for H. pylori, so it doesn't cause it, but it might help eradicate it. Not all by itself, but complementary to the antibiotics. Um, it doesn't necessarily affect vitamin D levels, but it does have an impact on other vitamins and nutrients, elements. Yeah, so if there were certain organisms that grow in an environment where the pH is higher, because that's what these types of drugs do, they elevate the pH, then maybe it would favor growth of those other organisms. Now, what's the pH of most of our stomachs in a fasting state? Around one or two, right? Pretty acidic. We talked about that before. That's physiologically normal. That's where the body wants it to be. And if we suppress that chronically, and taking a medication like omeprazole lasts all day long, you're suppressing it chronically, the bacteria that usually live in the digestive tract are going to change. 
could that potentially set you up for some kind of other infection? It might. Theoretically plausible. Some data suggests that it actually happens. But I wouldn't say that those data come from randomized controlled studies that prospectively prove anything. One of the things you'll come across is increased risk for C. diff infection. Chronic use of PPI, like year over year, seems to be associated with a slightly greater risk for that infection. Maybe also certain types of pneumonia because of aspiration of GI contents into the lung. Again, not clear cause and effect relationship, but biologically plausible and certainly a possibility. So reasons why you might want to think twice about does someone really need to take a proton pump inhibitor for months on end if there's no clear indication for it. There are potential risks. All right, then warfarin. And as of this moment, still the most commonly prescribed oral anticoagulant, but the, the gap is closing very quickly. Why is she on that? Atrial fibrillation, right? For clot prevention. And then ciprofloxacin was used to treat the urinary tract infection. At the time of the presentation, a urine culture is obtained. Insensitivities are performed. And empirically, they're started on ciprofloxacin. And then they come back a week later, and another culture is done. And this is what you see. Another culture because they're still not better. What do you think? What's growing? E. coli. The organism that's most often going to cause a community-acquired urinary tract infection, but not the only organism. And what are we seeing? We see the Cipro she's been taking for the past week doesn't seem to be the right choice. This organism is resistant to that Cipro. Maybe because of something she did or didn't do correctly, or maybe just because it was at baseline a resistant organism, although we don't have data to support that. What else? It's resistant to a few other things, most of which we've talked about. Everything but one thing we've talked about. What is it sensitive to? Sensitive to nitrofurantoin. Remember, don't pay attention to these numbers side by side. That number is used to define sensitive or not, but it means nothing compared to other drugs numbers. <coughs> Nitrofurantoin sensitive. Gentamicin we haven't talked about yet, so we'll just leave that out of the picture, but that's sensitive. Urdipenem, what kind of drug is that? Carbapenem. What comes to mind with the carbapenem? Most often used in pretty sick patients, they tend to cover a lot of things really well, a lot of gram negatives included. They are usually administered to patients who are hospitalized in pretty bad shape. Erdipenem, you could maybe get by with giving it ambulatory, but it's still parenteral. More aggressive than you probably need for a routine E. coli infection. And then cefepime and cefazolam. What do you remember about cefepime? Yeah, it's an anti-pseudomonal cephalosporin. Again, parenteral-only therapy that's usually reserved for sick patients in the hospital. And then we have cefazolam, the one we just talked about from that antibiogram. So provided she's still symptomatic, and we have an organism and we know what might be useful or not useful to treat it, where would you go next? Nitrofrantone? Yeah. 
Ambulatory. Ambulatory? Yes. This woman resides at home with her significant other. The, the drugs up here, that the drugs themselves are available in oral formulations, are ampicillin, cipro, nitrofurantone, and vaccine. Okay. Does anyone want to lobby for anything else? Does the kidney function enough, enough to produce antibacteria in the, I mean, the antibacterial into the urine? Yeah, is her kidney function adequate enough for the drug to get to the site of infection and not accumulate and maybe cause some unwanted side effects? What do you guys think about that question? I really like it, by the way. <laughs> That's the key question. Is her kidney function sufficient enough for nitrofurantillin to be safe and effective for what we're trying to achieve? And the answer to that is probably not. This GFR of 26 is not sufficient for nitrofurantillin to concentrate in the urine in sufficient quantities to eradicate this organism more often than not. And if it's not concentrating in the urine, what's happening to it? It's accumulating in the body. And while nitrofurantone is usually a well-tolerated drug, if you're exposed to too much of it, it can produce some toxicity, some of which can be fairly dangerous. Top of the list in terms of danger is pulmonary fibrosis. And that is about as bad as it sounds. About, there's about a 10% mortality rate if someone is unfortunate enough to experience that side effect. So we'd like to avoid that if we could, and certainly excess of use of nitrofurantoin puts someone at slightly greater risk for that. Plus it's not gonna work so well. So if nitrofurantoin is not a good choice for this person, or any other person with really poor kidney function, then where would you go next? Admission. You could admit them. And then what would you give them? Give them cefazolin or cefazolin, however you prefer to pronounce it. Oh, wait a minute. Could we, could we just keep them on the outpatient setting and, just, and give them a drug that is in the same family as cefazolin? That's an interesting idea. What do you guys think? That sounds really good to me too. So on each end of the room today, we have we have a good place to start. Any other thoughts? Well, I have a question about that. Would the sensitivity be the exact same because it's in the same family? Yeah, so in this case, it's not always the case, but in this case, you can make the assumption that whatever you see reported for cefazolin is going to be true for cephalexin. The, in the Petri dish, what's been tested specifically is this drug, but their activity is identical. It's just one is available orally and the other is available parenterally. So they're interchangeable in this case. If cefazolin works, then you can make the assumption that cephalexin should work as well. And no need to admit a patient if we can treat them with cephalexin. The other part is what do we want to do with that cephalexin? This actually works to our advantage, although if we forget to do it, maybe it causes some problems. Like with all of the beta lactams, what do we need to do when there's impaired kidney function? Dosage. Yeah. So instead of having to give this drug three or four times a day, 
the dose now becomes twice a day. Actually makes it more convenient in this case. So it ends up probably being the best choice of what's left. You could make an argument. Let's just say that the, the cefazolin was resistant as well. You could make an argument for continued Cipro if there had been any evidence of improvement. In this case, there wasn't. But if there were, how could you make that argument? Continued use of Cipro, even though the report says it's resistant. Cipro concentrates in the urine. You're likely to get high concentrations of that drug at the site of infection. What this resistance letter means is the concentration that it takes for this drug to inhibit growth is rather high, higher than what you'd usually be able to achieve in many places in the body. However, in this part of the body, the drug concentrates there. You're going to get levels that are usually above whatever is defining the resistance breakpoint. So there is a good chance the Cipro would still work. We don't need to go there, probably shouldn't go there given the failed response initially, but that type of rationale is sometimes employed by the infectious disease teams. You wouldn't want to do that on your own. You'd want to consult with someone else if you were going down that kind of pathway. But does it make sense? Yeah. Was there a question over here? Yeah. Um, Yeah, don't the fluoroquinolones interact with warfarin? So that's another interesting point here, right? So this patient's on warfarin. And antibiotics in general interact with warfarin, but Cipro even more so because of what? Cytochrome P450 interactions, right? Almost any antibiotic because of changes in endogenous bacterial flora and less vitamin K can have an elevating effect on warfarin. Cipro more so than most. And so, in fact, in this patient, we had to make some adjustments to the warfarin dose to keep them therapeutic. You can adjust for that, but you have to monitor more frequently. Another reason why Cipro is problematic in this case. Are we good? All right. So, this is the next slide set that is posted. Um, I just merged the two files here before we started. That's posted on Tusk. And this is other miscellaneous topics. What we're going to do for the remainder of today is this slide set, and then we're going to talk about antifungal therapies. And next week on Monday, we will cover aminoglycosides and vancomycin, and probably some antiviral therapies too. Sound good? All right. So to begin with, we have this scenario here. So I'm going to tie together some loose ends and maybe introduce some additional new concepts that we've not quite talked about yet. We have a 67-year-old man admitted for bypass surgery complicated by this wound infection at the graft harvest site. He's allergic to penicillin, so he's given a 10-day course of an alternative antibiotic to treat that infection. A week later, he comes in with these symptoms. What do you think has happened? What kind of adverse reaction is this? Biologic. It's not allergic. Biologic. It's a biologic, right? It's a biologic adverse effect to the antibiotics. This is antibiotic-induced overgrowth of what you might call an opportunistic organism, in this case, which one? Clostridium difficile, right? Now, this is what happens. 
started on metronidazole flagyl, that drug we talked about towards the end of Monday, usually the drug of choice, and usually when it's given for this purpose, it's given orally, but could be given intravenously. The diarrhea persists, which of the following is used next? Would it be IV metronidazole? Would it be IV vancomycin? Would it be oral clindamycin? Oral vanco or oral vadaxamycin, a drug that we've not talked about yet. I'm not sure if it's come up anywhere else. So some some for I IV metronidazole. Couple. IV vancomycin. Some, some for that. Again, a drug we've not really talked about yet. Oral clindamycin. None? <laughs> <laughs> Longer I'm silent, the more the doubt keeps <laughs> Oral vancomycin? Can you stick with that? Like how long has they been on treatment? How long have they been on treatment with metronidazole? Yeah. About a week. Oral fidaxomycin. <laughs> Why not, right? We haven't talked to you guys. <laughs> I'll tell you, the other name for that is, um, is deficit. I'll write it out. I'm not telling you it's the right answer. I'm just throwing this other variable in here. That's the brand name for Fidaxomycin. All right. So let's go back to this. What What's the most likely antibiotic that this person got? What caused this in the first place? Penicillin allergy secreted with something else to prevent skin infection seeding into the bloodstream. What are some of the common alternatives? Potentially a tetracycline, potentially a quinolone, although seldom. Possibly Bactrim, but seldom for that too. Clindamycin. High on the list of drugs that are used as alternatives <laughs> to penicillin and likely to do what? Be the cause of C. diff overgrowth, right? Because it's an anti anaerobic drug that covers many anaerobes but not clostridium. So, for those of you that pick clindamycin, that was the worst choice. <laughs> That's what got us here in the first place. All right, so that's out. The best way to get metronidazole is to deliver it what way? Orally. Orally. And if that hasn't worked, what's the chances that IV will work? Pretty slim. Yeah. So even though IV metronidazole has activity, oral's the better way. And if oral's not working, you know IV's not going to work. Oral fidaxomycin would work in this case, most likely, but it doesn't mean it's the right choice at this point. That's more the third line option. Metronidazole, then Vanco, then Fidaxomycin. Fidaxomycin is like thousands of dollars for course of treatment. We don't really want to use that unless we have to, and we've burnt through the other options. So which formulation of Vancomycin 
you think would be the best? <coughs> like with metronidazole, the best way to get the drug to the site of action is to, delivery, to deli deliberately deliver it there. So oral vancomycin is the way that you would administer that medication for this infection. What if you gave it IV? Wouldn't work. Wouldn't work at all. So if you're going to use Vanco for C. diff, it has to be oral. If you're going to use metronidazole, it could be either IV or oral, although oral is better. Vanco has to be oral. Doesn't work if you give it intravenously. The distribution isn't into the GI tract at all. Or too little to be of consequence. All right, that's as much as we'll say about vancomycin for now. More on the features of that drug later next week. But I want you to appreciate where this fits. So typically, metronidazole, then vanco, then fidaxomycin. And where after that? Fecal transplant, right, which is not an uncommon scenario these days. All right, so to summarize where we've been with the antibiotics. So we started with beta-lactams a couple of weeks ago because that's what was developed first. But the drugs to be used clinically first were which ones? Macrolides didn't come until the 1950s. Oh, I thought you meant like nowadays, what is typically? Oh, what do we use first line for just things in general? Yeah, yeah macrolides certainly we do have a, a quick trigger for using those drugs. I meant which were the drugs that were first employed for clinical purposes? Sulfonamides. The sulfonamides, yeah. They weren't discovered first, but they were the first to be used clinically. And actually the discovery was not that far after the, the first of the beta-lactams, penicillin itself. What took penicillin so long to get to market was figuring out a way to mass produce it and use it in people. And that was about another 10 years later, early 1940s, when that first happened. All right, so we talked about everything up here except for polypeptides, which is a minor group, historically of interest but not of major importance, with the exception of one drug, and aminoglycosides and glycopeptides. That's where Vanco fits, glycopeptides. And so again, we'll talk about those two families, aminoglycosides and glycopeptides, on Monday. But the other day, we finished out tetracyclines, bacterolides, and quinolones. And what I was referring to the other day is how we haven't really had a major breakthrough in antibiotics since the 1960s. I was thinking about this timeline. The quinolones were the last revolutionary therapy for treating infections, and that was a long time ago. There's nothing that's been approved since then that's as broadly acting, that acts by a brand new mechanism. Lots of add-on therapy to complement what's already available, or new drugs that work by new mechanisms that are very specific at treating one or two things. But nothing, nothing is broad. Part of that is because we had exhausted, up until just recently, the ability to extract anti-infective agents out of natural sources. There's only so much that you can grow or culture or facilitate with technologies that were available up until about 10 years ago. And that's changed just recently. Some of the work that's been done over at Northeastern and some other universities has allowed scientists to better identify other organisms that are out there in front of us but weren't able to actually visualize until just recently. So I think there's a lot of change about to come over the next 10 to 20 years. All right, now these are antimicrobacterial agents. What does that mean? 
therefore tuberculosis, and other mycobacterial illnesses that are more commonly encountered as opportunistic infections in what patient populations? Immunosuppressed. Immunosuppressed patients are the ones most likely to be infected with mycobacterial organisms, but not exclusively. Certainly any one of us could be exposed to tuberculosis and contract that illness or develop latent illness. These are the, these are the workhorses in terms of treating tuberculosis. How do they get used for that illness? Like if you're treating someone with known tuberculosis, which of these drugs gets used? All of them together. Why is that? Because resistance occurs rapidly and with relative ease. And so it's at least three of these drugs, if not all four, provided your patient can tolerate it. And if there's good rapid response, you can, you can back down on the therapy. The term, one of the terms for this, where you start out with really aggressive therapy and then you narrow it down, is called de-escalation. So you can de-escalate therapy if there's good early response. So from four drugs down to three, maybe even just two drugs. But at a minimum, it's got to be two. What's a common side effect for these agents? At least three of them. Pretty stressful on the liver, right? These are hepatotoxic drugs. What's a relative contraindication to using them? Underlying liver disease or other things that patients might do that puts them at greater risk for liver toxicity, especially with the first two drugs. What's, alcohol. yeah, consuming alcohol in any quantity is considered a relative contraindication, especially for isoniazid and rifampin. So that sometimes is a barrier to therapy. Patients sometimes are not willing to abstain from alcohol throughout the course of treatment. All right, now, the two that I want you to know with some detail are the first two, because they come up frequently not just for treating active TB, but also for doing what? treating latent TB and preventing that from becoming widespread illness. So isoniazid most commonly, rifampin second most common. Isoniazid is a drug that we think works by inhibiting mycolic acid synthesis. And in my mycobacteria, the cell walls are not peptidoglycan, it's mycolic acid. So it's a cell wall synthesis inhibitor, but much different than beta-lactams. It's targeting something else that's unique to mycobacterial cells. Whereas rifampin is a drug that gets in the way of RNA synthesis. I don't care if you remember either one of those details. It's the next part that I want you to appreciate. Isoniazid could also cause neuropathy and neurotoxicity. The higher the dose, the greater the risk for that potential side effect. And then rifampin, do you know anything about that? What are the other concerns with rifampin? <laughs> you can go with what it says. So changes body fluid secretions in what way? Serostone. More of it, less of it, something different about it, stickier. <laughs> I think that's what you said, right? <laughs> or change in appearance. 
It's not all of the above. Yeah, this is this is one of those drugs that changes body fluid secretions a bright orange reddish color. What does that mean? You're bleeding out of your skin. No, that's not what it means. <laughs> it's, it's a relatively benign side effect, but that can be pretty troubling if you don't expect it to occur. So some counseling in advance goes a long way towards easing the anxiety that can occur if this, if this shows up. Urine can change color. Sweat can change color. Tears can change color. So if you're one of those people that uses contact lenses, and you've got the type of prescription where you have the non-disposable ones, like my wife does, they'll stain those lenses permanently. So that's a big waste of money if that were to occur. So what do you do in that case? Get dailies. <laughs> get, get dailies if your eyes can handle it. Sometimes it's not possible. Or just wear your glasses during the time you're taking therapy. Yeah. So that's like the worst case scenario, is it might damage your contact lenses. All right, then what else? What about the drug interactions? Now we've not talked about these drugs therapeutically yet. We've referenced them in the past. You probably don't remember. Any St. John's wort users? Some of you probably take it and don't even realize it. If you take any kind of multi-vitamin product from a health and nutrition store, many times they throw St. John's Ward in there just, just because. They don't have good reason for it, but it's in there. And I'll just abbreviate this phenobarba, phenobarbital. So does anyone know what these four drugs have in common? So some of them are anticonvulsants. Actually, three of them are. Phenytoin, carbamazepine, Phenobarbital are all anticonvulsants. St. John's wort is an over-the-counter herbal dietary supplement. What's it most commonly used for, by the way? Depression. Most commonly promoted for treating depression or elevating mood. And then rifampin is in this list. What do they all have in common? There might be PGP involvement, but above and beyond that is they produce drug interactions of enzyme induction. They are strong inducers of hepatic cytochrome enzymes. What does that mean? What do these drugs do to the enzymes? They increase the amount of their production, right? There's more enzyme produced. There's facilitation, there's stimulation of new enzyme production. So any other drugs that are usually metabolized and cleared by those enzymes, what happens? Their clearance is more rapid. They're removed at a, a greater rate. So combine rifampin or any one of these drugs with, say, an oral contraceptive, hormonal contraceptive that contains estrogen, and what's the consequence? Unwanted pregnancy, if that's the reason for the contraceptive use. Subtherapeutic levels of your drug. Or combine it with, say, an immunosuppressant, such as cyclosporin. Reduce levels of the immunosuppressant, acute organ rejection. 
or combine it with an antiviral drug for HIV, like a protease inhibitor. Subtherapeutic levels of the protease inhibitor, viral breakthrough, treatment resistance, and maybe need to switch to a whole new class of therapy as a result. So some really significant damaging interactions, if not used carefully. Rifampin, top of the list. Very strong enzyme inducer, lots and lots of drug interaction potential. But certainly cases where we need to use it. Most often for tuberculosis, occasionally as a prophylactic agent against things like some of the more common organisms that cause <coughs> bacterial meningitis. Like Neisseria meningitis is susceptible to this drug. Exposed contacts to that organism might be prophylaxed with perfampin to prevent illness should they be colonized with that organism. All right, so you've just been accepted to a new job. Prior to starting work, you learn that your PPD test is positive at 15 millimeters. You're all familiar with this, right? You had to do this. When was the last time you had to do it? Before you got into the program? And then does it have to be repeated soon? Every year? Depending on how closely you work with patients, it might be even more often than that. And the type of patients you end up working with. Sometimes it's every six months. Every year at a minimum if you're a healthcare worker. So your chest x-ray is normal. No evidence of disease. There's no granulomas present. Fortunately, that's the case here. That's usually the situation. You're advised to take an antibiotic every day for the next several months. What are you most likely advised to take? Isoniazid. Isoniazid. Yeah, how often? The duration is usually nine months. <laughs> Ernie's going to tell us from experience. <laughs> nine months. You might be able to get by with six months, but nine months is preferred if there's cooperation. I tried to ask him. Tried to, you tried to uh, negotiate yeah. for six, and they weren't here. They were going to look it out. No, yeah, we would discourage that, but if, if you have someone who's not as cooperative as, as you are, then we, um, we make the best of it. And what would be some of the counseling points? No alcohol. Were you able to do that? No. <laughs> Right? I, I work with a colleague who um, his girlfriend was going, was same scenario, and she was going over to Germany for Oktoberfest, so she decided to just postpone therapy until she got back. <laughs> so there's different ways to approach this. How was the judicious when I was playing? Yeah, I'm sure I'm still, you're here now, so. <laughs> Alright, so what else might you be advised to take? Probiotics. It's possible you might be advised to take probiotics. It's not exactly clear what their role is, um, but that probably wouldn't hurt. Pyridoxine. Yeah, pyridoxine. What is that? Vitamin B6. Vitamin B6. And what does taking that reduce the risk for? Neuropathy. Peripheral neuropathies. 
as worst case scenario would be seizure, but more often than not would be peripheral neuropathies. So if you're thought to otherwise be at risk for neuropathy, then a small dose of vitamin B6, like 25 or 50 milligrams a day, is usually sufficient to minimize that risk. So someone that maybe has a history of neuropathy, like diabetes or HIV or just other conditions that might predispose them, that might be a situation. Anything you'd want to monitor before you started therapy? LFTs. Liver function tests, right? If you're someone like Ernie who's drinking all the time, then you want to check liver function tests at baseline to make sure where you're at is not already a dangerous point, right? You don't want to find out later on that the drug that you just implemented made things that much worse if you can get ahead of it beforehand. Yes. Does it suppress like the synthetic function of the liver at all? Like, do you worry about the fat-soluble vitamins, or? You do not. So the question is, do you have to worry about synthetic function suppression? And the answer to that is no, provided you don't have outright fulminant liver failure, and that would be a pretty rare instance. But the type of toxicity or the stress on the liver here is not going to be enough to reduce synthetic function in most cases. And hopefully there won't be any stress, but there could be some. Um, what about the first one? What is that? Cytocobalamin. B12. That's vitamin B12. What's ergo Vitamin D. Right, that's one formulation of vitamin D. Another would be cholecalciferol, whether it's animal or plant derived, that's the only difference. Niacin. B3, vitamin B3. None of these others are relevant for this. I just thought it'd be fun to go through these. <laughs> Pyridoxine. B6. B6. Phytonidione. <laughs> what is that? You've seen that before. Vitamin K. Vitamin K. That's the chemical name for vitamin K. We might use that for the patient with the UTI earlier who we caused really high INR because we started Cipro. They were on the warfarin, right? And then thiamine is... B, B1, yeah. None of those other ones relevant to this case, just I will be fun. All right, let's walk through this scenario and then we'll take a break. We have this 43-year-old man. He has a history of asthma, mild and intermittent. And we'll talk more about the asthma drugs again after the first exam. He has no allergies. This is his medications at baseline. So he's on a short-acting beta agonist to open up his airways emergently if it should be needed, albuterol. The most common brand name for that is Pro-Air. He's on an inhaled steroid, which is certainly suitable with asthma, which is an inflammatory disease. In this case, Ruticazone. Ruticazone comes in three different strengths, 44 micrograms, 110 micrograms, 220 micrograms. So he's on the lowest of the three strengths. And for no particular reason, he's decided that he needs to be on niacin, but it's not relevant to this case otherwise. At least I don't think that it is. All right, so he presents on this date in February. This isn't this year, a few years ago. He has symptoms that sort of look respiratory in nature. Could be a virus, could be a bacteria. Given this history of asthma, maybe you lean a little bit more towards the bacterial side. But it's been going on now for over a week. What diagnosis is he's most likely to receive? Asthma exacerbation plus or minus bronchitis, right? And more often than not, bronchitis is due to what? 
a virus. And more often than not, we treat that with antibiotics, right? <laughs> it's, just, it's just habit, what we do. And so in this case, that so happens. He's given the bronchitis with asthma exacerbation diagnosis. And this is what happens treatment-wise. Continue on the beta agonist and use it as needed like you've been doing. Let's step up the fluticasone to the highest strength. And let's start doxycycline twice a day for 10 days. What do you think about the last choice? A couple of things about this, right? So from the perspective of, all right, let's just give in and make the assumption that maybe this is bacterial. If it is, would that choice of therapy be suitable? A community-acquired respiratory infection. Would that drug cover most of what's in your differential? What would be missing? Some say strep pneumoniae, some say atypicals. The answer is none of those. It, it covers all the things you'd be thinking about. In fact, I showed you these three boxes. I know it was, um, it was after like millions of facts on Monday, but there were these three boxes that talked about treatment of community-acquired pneumonia. And in the top left-hand box were the two primary therapies. And they were either a macrolide or, or a tetracycline, right? If you can use one, you can use the other. So the type of choice would cover all the things you're worried about. The duration is probably excessive. You could very likely get by with just five days of therapy. Ten is probably twice as much as you need. All right. This is... This is nine days later. He wakes up in the middle of the night. He's having a lot of heartburn. And he is told to take ranitidine after calling the provider on call in the practice that he goes to, the one actually here. What is ranitidine? It's an antihistamine that's specific for the type of receptors that produce acid in the stomach. They're the type 2 receptors. So we oftentimes call it an H2 blocker. H2 receptor antagonist. The other name for it is, you know? Zantac. Yeah, you can get this over the counter. So a few days later, that's really not helping. So he comes in and he's seen in urgent care. And he's been having painful difficulty swallowing ever since that night. He's been taking the Zantac not just at bedtime, but three times a day because he wanted to. It wasn't working, so he was taking more. The good news is that's not harmful. This is a, a very benign drug from a side effect perspective. He's also been self-medicating with Mylanta and ibuprofen. What's Mylanta? It's, it's not a cough suppressant. It's not designed to be a cough suppressant. It is an antacid, a locally acting antacid. It's a mixture of magnesium and aluminum hydroxides and the hydroxides neutralize the acid in your stomach. So he's been taking that to coat his stomach, and he's been taking some ibuprofen. What's that? It's a traditional, relatively non-selective NSAID. And that, of the three drugs, he finds that's the best. That makes the pain go away. Doesn't go away for a long time. He's got to take the ibuprofen three times a day for it to, to last, but it's making the biggest difference. Any thoughts? What's going on with this guy? Something. Something. 
Oh, an ulcer? Something's going on with his stomach. Heart attack. Heart attack? He's having an MI. <laughs> we can put that somewhere in the list. It's not the top, but it's somewhere in that differential. It isn't what happened here, but... His, um, his, as of the 18th, yeah, he's been done with the doxycycline for a few days now. Because that was started on, what, the 4th? Was it the 4th? The 5th? Yeah, so by the 15th, he's done with that. This isn't so much complaints he has in his stomach. This is complaints he has in his throat. Right? It's difficulty swallowing. Let's think about what we did to him. I don't know where you're going with this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want this to be obvious. Alright, so what did we do to him? What was done to him? The intervention that seems temporarily associated with these symptoms. Is the albuterol starting a fungal infection for him? So, um, not the albuterol, but the inhaled steroid. Yeah. Is the inhaled steroid putting him at increased risk for a fungal infection because it suppresses the local immune system? Right, so oral steroid, the most common side effect is going to be what? Overgrowth of yeast, candida infection, right, thrush. So we've stepped that up. We've gone from 44 to 220. We've actually gone from none to 220 because he wasn't using fluticasone. It was in his med list, but he wasn't actually using it. So from none to very high potency inhaled steroid. And there is the potential for thrush to occur. Now, if you do an oral examination, you may or may not see that. The thrush could be in the oral cavity. It could be down further in the lower parts of the esophagus, and you can't visualize it. The patient's symptoms would be similar to what he's having. The only way to see it would be to do what? Endoscopy, right? Take a take a, a camera and go down there and look at it. So that's a possibility. What else? Could it be the drug? Could it be the doxycycline? Is the doxy also not working because he's taking myelanthin? Well, the myelanthin was started after the doxy was finished. But you're right. If you were to take those together, the doxycycline would fail to work, or it would not work as well as it should. Yeah, absolutely. In this case, they're not at the same time, but if they were, that would be highly relevant. You said that there, with the tetracyclines, there can be the um, chelation type reaction. So if, it was, if he's taking antacids, then that would have a chelation type. Yeah, so similar to what Dustin was suggesting, if you take doxycycline plus antacids, there could be chelation and reduced efficacy. The, the only good part about that here is that these were at separate times. The doxycycline was finished and then the myelanta started. But if they were at the same time, there could have been reduced efficacy of the doxycycline. Yeah, could the steroid be masking the side effect of the doxy in some way? If it were systemic steroids, that might be possible. When it's inhaled steroids, there's almost no systemic 
effect. So locally they're there, maybe causing thrush, but the rest of the body, almost nothing happens. Certainly not with just a couple of weeks of therapy. But good to be thinking about that. All right, what was one of the more common side effects of tetracyclines? It even occurred with that IV-only tetracycline derivative. Nausea and vomiting. Yeah. And I didn't tell you why that occurs. In most cases, the reason that occurs, does anyone know? Is the drug is locally irritating to the tissue that it interacts with. Which is why the side effect with the IV preparation was of interest, because we didn't expect that to happen. Most of the time, it's a topical effect. All right, so what do you think we did with this patient? Teaching hospital. Take an endoscopy. Let's go and take a look. And so this is what we find. Upper endoscopy shows multiple ulcers in the esophagus, right about the level of the aortic arch, which is classic for pill-induced esophagitis. So what happened here is that the doxycycline topically irritated the tissue and burned little holes right into it. And that was causing his symptoms. When he took his bedtime dose of doxycycline, what was he doing? He was sitting in bed. The best way to take doxycycline is to sit upright with a full glass of a clear liquid. Make sure it washes down into the stomach and does no harm. If you fail to do that, you put yourself at risk for this kind of scenario. And either he wasn't counseled appropriately or he chose not to listen. Who knows which of the two was true, but something happened to let him to take his doxycycline bedtime dose while he was laying in bed. So every night he'd take it, lay down, and it probably just sat there for an hour or so. And over the course of the week, it burned these little holes and caused this presentation. So it could have been the inhaled steroid, but it wasn't. It was the doxycycline not taken correctly. And this happens a fair amount. The frequency, I didn't, sh I didn't give you the slides. I wanted to work up to it. Um, the take-home point is that we had to treat him symptomatically, give him a drug to coat his esophagus, sacralphate, plus high dose of an acid-suppressive agent to promote healing. And if you look at the literature, about half the cases out there, they're with tetracyclines when taken orally. This is a very common scenario. Sometimes someone in the class has experienced this. Now, when I've taught this in the past, it's not unheard of to have someone know exactly where I was going with this because they've experienced it. It's that common. This year, you guys are fortunate. It's a fortunate group, I guess. The other types of drugs that do this, pill-induced esophagitis, does anyone know? There's a couple of other very common agents for which the same kind of directions apply. Sit upright, full glass of liquid, make sure you wash it through. It's not, it's not most of the NSAIDs, although they can be locally irritating to the tissue, not as to the same extent. <coughs> they don't come with the same kind of directions where it's so important to sit upright. It's, it's potassium supplements, oral solid dosage forms, like the tablets of potassium. And it's a drug that, or a type of drug that's used for osteoporosis. Bisphosphonates. Drugs like Fosamax or Actinel, those drugs, same thing. Pretty rigid directions about how they're used because they can also cause local, local irritation. All right, take a break. All right, let's take like five minutes.